Welcome to this podcast from Christchurch London. For more information and resources, please go to ChristchurchLondon.org. middle of a service, a series rather, on prayer at the moment, the Lord's Prayer, looking at the different ways that Jesus prayed. Down the ages, countless followers of Christ have found that prayer has become, if you like, the secret weapon to their lives, the power source, the place which energizes and enables them to do extraordinary things. Just to give you one example, George Muller. George Muller lived in early Victorian England. Poverty is arrived, particularly in the cities, so much so that uh, some parents literally give their children away or let them go rather than face the costs of raising them. Because of poverty too, of course, adult life expectancy is a lot shorter. A lot of parents die leaving orphans, uh, leaving their children as orphans. And this is a huge social problem in the early 1800s. And George Muller, who is a minister in Bristol, and his wife want to do something about it. Now, the basic principle, anytime you want to do something about something, is use the resources God has already given you. And so that's exactly what they do. They have a house. They don't have a lot of income, but they have a house. So they open their house up and start to fill it with orphan children. That is all very well, but of course the numbers of orphan children uh, in Bristol far outnumbers the number of bedrooms or the amount of space that the Mullers have. So quickly they run out of space and George Muller is left with, what is he going to do? What I should also say is that early in his ministry, he had decided that for him there was an important principle when it came to asking for money, which was essentially he took all his requests to God but refused to tell the church or, the wider, or his wider constituency anything about his financial needs. There were even times where people came to him, looked him in the eyes and said, how is it for you, George Muller? How are your family? Do you have everything you need? He said, I have determined that I will tell no one but the Lord what I need financially and I will trust him to provide for me. Number of orphans filling their Muller's home, what are they going to do? Well, George Muller, over the years, builds a number of orphanages. If you know Bristol, they're on Ashley Downs, and he builds orphanages in the end that will house 2,000 needy children. I mean, think of it, this is a huge project. 2,000 children, plus all the adults to staff that, plus the kitchens to feed 2,000 children, plus the staff to educate them, for they did exactly that, as well as teams that would enable their children as they graduated from the orphanages to go into apprenticeships or other forms of employment. This is a huge project, and he never, ever asked for money from anyone. In fact, there was one man who from time to time struggled with doubts in terms of his Christian faith, and he said that the way that he dealt with them was that on evenings where he was doubting whether there was a God and whether prayer was any good, he would open his curtains and he would look for the lights on Ashley Downs. And he said that when I saw the lights coming from the orphanages, I knew that there is a God in heaven and that prayer works, for there is no other explanation for that remarkable ministry than God is alive and he listens to our prayers. And Muller, of course, is just one example of many. 
that we could list. Men and women down the ages who have followed Jesus' example and prayed. And Jesus, of course, is arguably or maybe just inarguably the most influential person who's ever lived. He fascinated those who were alive as they heard him teach. It seemed that people would go without meals unthinkingly because they were so transfixed on Jesus' teaching. It seems that they came from all around. And they often commented, where does he get his wisdom? He doesn't have the right parents to speak like that. He doesn't have the right education. He's not from the right background. How does he speak with authority that makes us all listen, that makes the rulers and the authorities uneasy? Where does he get it from? And as they watched him and as the disciples followed him, they must have concluded it's got something to do with his private life. It's got something to do with what goes on when nobody else is around. It must have something to do with prayer. Here's how Mark describes Jesus' prayer life. Next slide, please. Or maybe next slide but one. And another one, please. Here we go. Very early in the morning, says Mark, while it was still dark. We all know what it is to get up while it's dark at the moment, right? Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. And the disciples must have got used to this. Actually, in this passage, it says that when the disciples got up, he wasn't there, so they looked for him. After a while, they must have just got used to the fact Jesus doesn't appear till later. He's gone before any of the rest of us, and he's gone to pray. And it seems that the greater his popularity, the more people that followed him... You would have thought the less time he had to pray, but actually the more he prayed. Here's how Luke describes it. The news about Jesus spread all the more widely, and crowds of people came to hear him. But he would go away to lonely places where he prayed. And the disciples again would have known this. They're they're wanting to celebrate. Did you see that miracle? Did you see 5,000 men, let alone the women and children, all had enough to eat? Where's he gone? He's disappeared. He's gone to pray again. So it's not surprising that they came to him and they said, teach us to pray. It is exactly the question I would want to ask. I have been praying for 40 years. I'm still asking that question. And I suspect we all are. I would say that prayer in the Western world is a lost art form. We're not geared up to pray. Society, the way society works, especially here in London, actually works against prayer. So I would suggest that for all of us, we could do with learning how to pray. And that's what Jesus does. He turns to his disciples and he has some words for them. And it's those words that I want to unpack this morning. They're recorded in Luke chapter 11, verse 11, and they go like this. (coughs) Excuse me. One day... Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, but for we also forgive everyone who sins against us and lead us not into temptation. 
And before we just unpack these words, and that's what I want to do this morning, I want to ask a, a prior question to that, which is what do we do with this prayer? What, how, do, how are we meant to handle it? See, some people would say, well, it's written in a very informal way. The language is very personal. It's sort of how you talk in a family. And some would say, look, the point that Jesus is making is that prayer should be spontaneous, authentic, personal, informal. Just tell him what's on your heart. And of course, we know that's the case. And if you're here and you are yet to ever pray, my encouragement is go somewhere private. Jesus said, go into your room and shut the door. So just find some space where there is no one else and talk. And just express what's on your heart to him. It's just like conversation. The only difference is you can't see God. But otherwise, it's just the same. You talk. So some people would say, look, this is just, the, the words don't really matter. Just pray normally. Pray as you talk. And while clearly spontaneity and informality and authenticity all really matter in our relationship with God and we would want to underline all those things. When you look at the content, the words actually have been carefully crafted. Each phrase is almost certainly phrases that Jesus would have prayed personally on a daily basis. So it's not just saying, be spontaneous. There's more to it than that. I want to suggest that it is a model prayer. That he's essentially giving us the headings. Your kingdom come, your will be done, deliver us from evil. Forgive us our sins for us to personally apply in our own lives. It's a model prayer. Well, some may say here, well, if it's a model prayer that we're to fill in or contextualize, then why has it been prayed more than any other prayer as it stands for 2,000 years? That will be prayed. This prayer will be prayed in churches all around the world today. It'll be prayed in some schools tomorrow morning. So what do we do with the formality of the way that it's, we've got used to it? I want to say a couple of things. Firstly, it's not how Jesus meant it, in my opinion. It's not his primary purpose. That doesn't mean it isn't of value. It clearly is. It shaped our world for 2,000 years. It's not his primary purpose, but nonetheless, we found real value, whether it's this prayer or other prayers, sometimes adding them in to our contemporary informal worship. And sometimes people say to me, David, why do we do that? The church that I came from emphasized spontaneity, sensing the spirit. We'd want to do those things, most definitely. Why do you sometimes add in some formal elements as well? Just quickly and briefly, and then we'll get to this prayer. Let me give you a few reasons why we do that. Second, firstly, they provide rich content. Often, the prayers that we use in our worship have been prayed for hundreds of years. They've clearly, uh, they've clearly gone through the test of time. The content is rich and we can draw from it. When I sponta pray spontaneously, I find myself often defaulting to my favorite themes, passages, and phrases. By incorporating prayers that have been prayed down the centuries as well, we get a broad and richer diet of themes and subjects the first reason. The second reason is sometimes we don't know what to pray. Who's decided I'm going to pray, shut the door and suddenly think, I don't know what to say. 
Well, the second reason that written prayers are so helpful is for that reason. They give us words. C.S. Lewis called them ready-made prayers. And I know there's times where I've been in such pain or disarray or confusion, I've not known what to say. And to take a prayer that has been prayed down the centuries and get going with that has been profoundly helpful for me. Thirdly, there's real benefit in praying the same prayer all together. We live in this radically individualized world where we're taught to only think about ourselves. And that can easily seep into our worship. I'm here worshipping God by myself. I've got my eyes closed. I can't see anyone else. It's just me and God. And I forget that actually an important part of worship is worshipping as a church family. We're together as well as an individual. And therefore sometimes for a prayer to come up and us literally to say it together is a wonderful way of the family worshipping together. Fourthly, it is biblical, and there are a number of examples of what scholars, scholars judge to be corporate prayers or hymns as the epistles uh, were written. If I had time, I'd love to unpack some of that. Happy to, um, happy to do that with individuals afterwards if you're interested. And finally, it provides familiar signposts for those who've started attending church again after a break and are trying to find their way back to faith in God. It's just a way of feeling, oh, there's something that I remember in what is often an uh, unfamiliar setting which people are coming into. So for all those reasons, we think there's benefit in the formality, but it's not what Jesus primarily meant. Here, I want to suggest he's, used, he's giving a model prayer with different headings which we can use when we don't know what to say. So let's just unpack those very briefly together. And essentially, it sort of goes like this. He starts with who we're talking to. And that shapes everything else. Well, of course it does. If you were teach, talking to a teacher at school, you would ask very differently from a parent at home. When you were at home, you might even have talked to your father and your mother differently in asking for things. Who you're talking to shapes how you ask. And Jesus makes it clear, firstly here, we're talking to a loving father. Now, Joe spent a whole sermon on this. I'm not going to spend long on it at all. But when Jesus says, Abba, Father... He's going totally against contemporary understandings of God. His listeners would have been shaped by the pagan gods of the Greeks and the Romans. And these gods were violent gods always fighting each other. Think of the battle of the Titans. Gods at war. The Greek gods, the Roman gods, Mars. Described by one of the poets as savage and feral always holding a spear, seeing who he could lance, who'd gained his displeasure. So when Jesus says, Father, everyone's like, what? Father? But we thought God's war and are violent. Now clearly the contemporary understandings of God today, whatever they are, are very different from a loving father. Jesus makes it clear. He said, loving father, like the father of the prodigal son. When the prodigal son said, I'll take the inheritance and go, he was basically saying, wish you were dead. Wish we'd got there already, but if you're happy, I'll take it now. And the father stands and looks for his son every day. And Jesus is saying, this is what God is like. Later, or at a different time, he compares 
God to earthly fathers. And he says, earthly fathers, though you know how to give good gifts to your children, he says, even more so will your heavenly father. If my child comes and asks me for something, I say, yes, how much more does our heavenly father give us good gifts? So Jesus is saying, this is different. He's totally different. And James piggybacks on this idea in his epistle. And he says, you do not have because you don't ask. Oh, that's interesting. I wonder how our lives would have been different if there were things that we never asked for. Which decade of your life might have been significantly different if you said, Lord, please would you give me this? I know you are a good father. You will never, ever pray regularly without a conviction. He's good and he's loving and he wants to bless us. And if Jesus shows us the father which he does, it's like pulling away the veil and saying, look, loving, good, heavenly father. That's where he starts, loving father. But he also says, holy king, hallowed be your name. You're awesome. You're right up there. You're seated on high. You are other. You are different. You are to be adored and revered and dealt with in awe. You are great. C.S. Lewis writes a book of, about prayer, and the way that he does it is he writes letters to Malcolm. Malcolm's his friend. I don't know whether Malcolm really... Uh, lived or whether he was just a literary device but he writes his letters to Malcolm Malcolm writes back in one of the letters Malcolm writes to C.S. Lewis and he compares God to a lover not inaccurately there are passages of scripture that do that he said God loves us and he's tender the presence is fragrant goes on like this that's how we should pray C.S. Lewis's answer is this he says Malcolm to make your description of God entirely accurate, you need to also add to it John's experience when he saw God in Revelation and John fell at his feet as if dead. He said, it's not that he isn't tender and loving and good, but he's also awesome and holy. And we have to hold both of these things in tension. Now my question is, which do you lean towards in your prayer life? If you lean towards loving Father, then it's likely that you will be happy to ask him for your own needs. Because that's what we do to a loving Father. If we lean into mighty King or holy King, then we'll probably be easier praying about world events and the life of the church. Big things, things beyond our control. What Jesus is actually saying is, if you want to learn how to pray, do both. He's loving Father and he's holy King. And you pray out of both of those understandings. You pray with intimacy and ease, but also aware that he is entirely different from you. That he is holy and that he is king. So that's where Jesus starts. Loving Father, Holy King. And then he says that your understanding of these two characteristics will shape the way you pray. He goes first actually to the Holy King because he says your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. This is the theme of Jesus' ministry. The writers of the Gospels often summarize his preaching just as he came and he preached. The kingdom is here. In essence, in summary, the kingdom is that everything bad, evil will be banished. No more suffering, no more tears, no more pain, no more tragedy, no more hopelessness, no more purposelessness. 
but bliss with God. Purpose, life, faith, ease, harmony, shalom, healing, all of that to come. But Jesus says, not just to come, but it comes now. It breaks in now, in part. You're to pray your kingdom come right now. And as I said, if we understand him as holy king, we'll pray that on a big scale. I want to encourage us this morning to pray on a national and international scale, just as Liam led us earlier. I have never come into the new year as I did this year with as many people saying to me, I'm anxious about what will happen this year. I had a, a mother in one of the other services, literally tears flooding down her face, saying, I'm, I'm frightened about raising my family, raising my children in this world as it appears right now. But do you know what Paul says to the Philippians? He says, do not be anxious, but pray. I think sometimes as Christians we forget that. I think rather we say, no, let's be anxious and not pray. Or maybe be anxious, well, and pray then. But Paul actually says, no, don't be anxious. Some of us think, how can I stand out? How can I show this wonderful life of God that has filled my life? How can I demonstrate it's different? Fathers, don't be anxious. Don't be anxious. Don't be anxious in your personal life and don't be anxious about the world. The one enthroned in heaven laughs when man makes his plans. Not that it will all be easy, but he will give us grace for it all and he is ultimately will bring everything together and renew all things do not be anxious, but pray. I, one of the wonderful bits of what I thought was a wonderful sermon last Sunday from Andy Tilsley was his reminding us of several occasions where the church has prayed and national events have changed as a result. I want to just remind us of another one this morning. The Berlin Wall came down in 1989, but many of us will remember it as a symbol of division of division of peoples and a people, the German people. It was built actually not to keep people out, but to keep people in, to stop people getting out, to give a covert sense of what could be done in the communist bloc and in East Germany in particular. It was the symbol of what was known as the Cold War. Early in the 1980s, almost a decade before it came down, a church in Leipzig started to pray on a Monday night. I, we're not talking big crowds here. Twelve was a good night. But they prayed every Monday evening for years. They prayed. In the mid-80s, the pastor put a sign outside the front door. He said, pray for peace, all welcome. And because it was such a great need, people came from everywhere. Old, the young, Christians, even atheists came to pray. I was at Andy last week or one week recently, some, someone was saying this, we've all got a need to pray. It was last, last week, week before, whenever it was. Another <laughs> wonderful sermon. <laughs> Lars was saying that there's this natural thing in all of us to pray. So atheists came to pray in the church in Leipzig. In early months of 1989, the German authorities, these German authorities announced publicly the meetings are to stop. They will be banned. Henceforth, we will use whatever means are necessary for that to happen. As the Monday came, people were very nervous. 
And there was this sense that people would ignore. This is the year of Tiananmen Square. This is the year where totalitarian regimes have slaughtered great crowds. On the next Monday evening, 8,000 people try and get into the church building. 70,000 people come onto the streets of Leipzig. They pray for an hour and then they disgorge from the church and they walk. And they walk with candles in their hands and prayer in their hearts. And everyone is expecting a massacre and the authorities stand by and nothing happens. And later the authorities uh, were reported to have said, we were prepared for anything but candles and prayer. Within days, Honecker, the German leader, had resigned. Within a month, the Berlin Wall had come down. You're saying to me, are you just saying it was prayer? No, it was countless, multiple, complex reasons. But if you, were, if you remember that time, you remember the sense of surprise and the speed and the sense that events were being taken over by something greater. And it would appear, I would suggest, that prayer played an important role. Ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, pray Hallowed be his name. He is great and lifted up. Do not be anxious, but pray. Pray for our world, but also pray for the church. Pray for the church. The greatest sign of the kingdom come, we're still on your kingdom come, the greatest sign of that in the Gospels was the, this sense that God was literally amongst his people. It was hard to define and you could never put your finger on it, but it was better felt than felt, as they say. You knew it when it was happening, when God was present. And I want to encourage us to pray for the presence of God. Pray for it across our services. Pray for it particularly here in the central service. We see this central service is absolutely critical to our mission to serve the city. If you want a big bomb, if you want to feel the heat of fire at the extremities, then the center needs to be white hot. And so our prayer is that this service will be white hot so we can serve the others. That this service will be full of men and women finding faith, loving Jesus, getting ready to send others out in due course. But here, here, there is a sense of the presence of God and a desire to love and serve the whole city. The guys I was with in Stockwell this morning, they're rightly focused on the south. When I go east this evening, they'll be focused on that. Here we here, our particular burden is for the whole city and serving the whole city. So we pray for the presence of God. To say very quickly, in my lifetime, there are two churches I know particularly well who experienced an unusual sense of the presence of God, which resulted in large numbers coming to faith and their cities being served. What's fascinating is this. Their worship was entirely different. One was full of folk songs, the other was much more formal. Their preaching entirely different. One told stories, the other exegeted the scriptures in a technically appropriate and, uh, and accurate sense. One wore suits, the other uh, wore t-shirts and shorts. And the difference, one had a theology of the Holy Spirit which said he's here now and there's, we can expect miracles. The other said miracles are done. But both of them experienced an outpouring of the Spirit which led to many, many people coming to faith. Don't make the mistake of thinking you've got to dress a certain way, sing certain songs, or have a certain approach 
in order for the presence of God to be there. The presence of God is predicated by a hunger or an appetite in our hearts. And that's what we're looking for. We're not trying to be like someone else. That's never a good thing because God makes everyone unique. But we are trying to do what every church should do with an appetite for the presence of God that we may serve our city effectively. So we pray for that. Moving on quickly. Kingdom come, global. It's the, ch- it's the nations, it's the church, but it's also personal. And Jesus gives a whole set of personal prayers that we're to pray. Give us our daily bread. Give us what we need today. I mean, what do you need to get through the rest of today? Some of you, it's just like, I need Sunday lunch. Others of you, you're like, it's rather more fundamental than that. What are the challenges you're facing this week you do not have because you do not ask? What do you need in order for 2017 to be the very best year you've ever had? Give me my daily bread. And forgive us our sins. Tom Wright, the former Bishop of Durham, shows quite brilliantly how Jesus' self-identity was wrapped up in the leaving Egypt. He saw his ministry as freeing the people in the same way that Moses freed the people from Pharaoh's domination. So Tom Wright argues, and I think quite accurately, that to forgive our sins is to ask for freedom from all the effects of Egypt, the oppression, the grief, the trauma, the things that they had done wrong. Now, all of us carry baggage from the past that we need to be freed from. All of us carry guilt and shame from past actions that we regret and know are wrong. Forgive us our sins. Free me and free my heart and my spirit and my mind from all the effects of evil that have touched my life down the years. Whether I'm responsible for it or not, free me. Get Egypt out of me. Give me my daily bread. Here's what I need today. Cleanse me and free me from the past. And keep me from temptation. In other words, may I live the life that I want to live. We all have our vulnerabilities. And we all have particular times of challenge. Not every time is the same. And if it's good for you right now, then there will become times of greater challenge. If there are times of challenge right now, I have good news for you. It will not always be like this. As Jesus looked at Peter and he said, the prince of this world has asked to sift you. Peter, get ready. It's going to be challenging for you for a while. Pray, lead me from temptation. A few weeks ago, I was speaking at a conference with a very, one of the other speakers was a very impressive young man who travels the world speaking at conferences. And at one point during our time together, he said to me, he said, David, he said, just how do you do this for decades? How do you keep going and get what you need for every day? How do you live in such a way that the baggage from the past doesn't shape your actions in the present? And how do you live staying free from the things that could taint you and shape you and break you? And we're all asking that question. And you know what the answer is? Pray this prayer every day. Give me my daily bread. Forgive me from evil. Keep me from temptation. And so as we do, we remember, he's a loving father and he is a holy king. Maybe the band could come back, please.
This is our invitation to pray. Brothers and sisters, Christ Church London, I want to call you this morning. Make time in your schedules, wherever you can. And just to say, particular compassion on those of you with young right now. Do not beat yourselves up if you can't find the time in the way that you used to or the way that you will in the future. But find time where you can. Find time and make, it, make time and take this. And start by, what does it mean to you to pray to a loving father and tell him how grateful you are? Remind yourself. Then to a hallowed king. Ask for your kingdom to come. I don't know what's happening in your life. I don't know where the kingdom needs to come, but ask him for it. Ask for your daily bread. Get Egypt out of you. Forgive my sins. And you know your vulnerabilities better than anyone. Do not be afraid to tell your loving father about them and ask him to keep you from them. That we may live well. That we may, as Paul says, shine like stars in the middle of an evil and crooked generation. And that he would be glorified through our lives. Let's stand together, shall we? Let's pray, shall we? I want to pray, loving Father and Holy King, may even now your kingdom come amongst us. May the presence of God fill this place. And even, Heavenly Father, as we sing worship song to you now, I pray, give us your daily bread. I pray, give us your daily bread. You do not have because you do not ask. Father, we just reach out to you now and we ask you for that sustaining power that each of us need. Free us, we pray, from the effects of Egypt and keep us from temptation. That you, the one we love, would be seen in our lives and seen by others. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Thank you for listening. For more information or for further podcasts and downloads, please visit ChristChurchLondon.org.